Good morning, Three Rivers. I trust you are doing well. Um, 16 verses, the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. That's what we've been studying. And uh, we've been looking at these various signposts through the Old Testament that point us to Jesus and His redemptive work on our behalf. And so today we're studying the Passover. So if you'll join me in prayer, uh, we're going to ask the Lord for His help, and then we're going to get after it, okay? Father, we thank You now for Your incredible grace to us. We thank You for the powerful gospel that is salvation for everyone who believes. And God, I pray today that You will cause the person work of Jesus Christ to be perfectly clear and evident. Holy Spirit, we trust You to be teacher, counselor, helper, guide to truth. To make the gospel clear. God, I pray that you would, for your people, cause them to see and understand the signpost. How to read and understand that they may know your word, know you better, grow in grace, and grow further into Christ, who is our head. And Father, for those maybe who do not yet know Jesus redemptively, I pray, God, for awakening, for Holy Spirit regeneration to take place. That Jesus and His good news and His kingdom would do a supernatural work in bringing them into the kingdom this morning. Would you accomplish all those things? We trust you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. Today, the Passover, Exodus 12, 23. So if you have a Bible, um, you can flip over there. It's really the whole story, really, of the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. But for the sake of uh, the story of the Bible in 16 verses, we're just looking at one verse... Uh, all the way through his various signposts, it points to the gospel. And it happens to be Exodus twelve twenty three today. And here it is. Uh, Genesis, Exodus. So second book in your Bible, if you're not sure what that is. Genesis, Exodus, book number 2, chapter 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door... And will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses or to strike you. God created a kingdom. And He is the king of His kingdom. But God made human beings to represent Him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to the twin destroyers of sin and death. But God, being gracious, promised to defeat the serpent. Through the offspring of the woman who is also the offspring of Abraham. So that through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal offspring, the covenant blessings would come to the world. But because all people were guilty, and here's our thesis sentence, because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law, and therefore the beginning of those sacrifices revealed at Passover, revealed more clearly... Their need and our need for a substitute. The Passover is an absolutely gigantic gospel signpost in your Bible. We've been studying various signposts through the, through, through 16 verses. And, and as you read your Bible, you're going to see multiple little signposts along the way. But the Passover is not a little signpost. It is a gigantic signpost. It is a clear representation of the gospel. I don't know if you ever travel Interstate 75, uh, going south to the ATL or, or coming somewhere down south up back to God's country in the state of Georgia, coming north. But sometimes along the road, you notice there are certain signs, right? There, there's a sign here, a sign there. And some signs are larger than 
some signs. Some signs are smaller than some signs. And if you have eyesight problems like me, as you hit the mid-40s, and, and they, nothing quite works, you know, this works, this doesn't work. Some signs are clearer, some signs are not so clear. It depends on the size of the sign, right? And so you see some small signs, and I'm not quite sure what that said, but every now and then, when you get closer to Atlanta, there are these big LED interstate-wide banners, with big light-up letters letting you know that it'll be 12 hours from Barrett Parkway to Delk Road, right? You know how it works. You can't miss those. You may miss the little printed sign, but you don't miss the LED banner crossing the interstate. The Passover is an LED banner across the interstate of God's Word that says, here, who, here is who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish. You have to be completely blind to miss the Passover as a gospel indicator. And many of us maybe were in the past. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were blind to that. But the Passover is one of God's teachers in the narrative of history to show us how God is working in history and how He's building the pattern of what He's going to do to complete His promise to, through, the offspring of the woman crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. So when we come to the Passover, what do we see What does it mean? What we're not going to do today for the sake of time is read the whole chapter. We read 12 verse 23, which is a great summary. I'll read it again. And we're going to work through some observations from the chapter and surrounding chapters of the book of Exodus to help us see the Passover as one of God's great indicators to the gospel. Exodus 12, 23, one more time. For the Lord, who? The Lord, God, the creator of all things. Not not an angel. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. This isn't in your notes. You go to mitchjolly.com. you got your sermon notes for the day. This passage is key because he tells us that it is the Lord who passes through to strike the Egyptians. In other passages, you talk about the destroyer, the, the one who passes through, the angel to destroy. I'm not doing systematic theology class right here. But when the text gets explicit and lets us know... Who this is, this destroyer, who this one is who is passing through. It's important to recognize a key theme of the Passover, which we'll get to in just a moment. But it is none other than the Lord Himself who is passing through. You notice that? For the Lord, all caps, if you have your Bible, and it's L-O-R-D, all caps, L-O-R-D. That's how in English, translators are letting you know this is the divine covenant name of God. This is This is God. This is the one. This is the one who called Moses with the burning bush. This is the one who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord Himself will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when He, the Lord, sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house or to strike you. And God will identify Himself later as the one who is going to strike all of those down. And that is key. We'll get to it in just a moment. So what do we see? What does it mean? First, the Passover here and all the subsequent sacrifices of the Mosaic Law remind us of this key point that the wages of sin is death. One of the very first 
realities that God wants us to recognize as we come to the Passover is to remember that the wages of sin is death. And I think it's absolutely fascinating here that God uses bad grammar to teach us good doctrinal truth. If you're like me, you should recognize that it should be the wage of sin is death, right? Singular all the way through. Is anybody, anybody reckon, does that bother anybody else? It should if you're a grammar Nazi. It's the wage of sin is death. But that's not what Paul says when Paul's exegeting this passage. As a matter of fact, in Romans 6.23, Paul says the wages of sin is death. I put a footnote there in the blog and you can see my little footnote. I love footnotes. They're beautiful. Because you can explain things that you don't want to put in the main body. But here's the point here, is that sin is devastatingly nasty, and yes, it causes death, but sin also causes a myriad of other nasty things that come along with death. Wages, the payout, the multiple payouts of sin is death. Meaning that with sin comes more than death. It comes death and everything that follows in its wake. And the Passover is here to remind us that These sacrifices that are going to come and this initial sacrifice at Passover is to remind us that what our parents did in the garden, what we're born with, and every time we sin, the consequence is death. So that every time, throughout every home in Egypt, every time they went into the promised land and some person had to cut the throat of the goat... You see, death is lost on most of us. We avoid death. Very few of us have had the honor of watching our parents die. I buried both of my parents and watched both of my parents die. Nothing about death is good. Nothing about death is sweet. Nothing about death smells right. And so we don't deal with death. Many guys aren't even hunters anymore, but if you hunt and you kill an animal, it's not a pleasant thing. Death isn't pretty. So every time at the temple, they went to cut the throat of a goat and bleed it out and watch its life leave its body. Or once a year, that little lamb, that perfect little lamb that they set aside that was clean and they cut its throat and bled it out and put it up on the altar. They were to be reminded of what God said in Genesis 2.17. The day you eat it, you will die. And so God gave them the Passover here as a pointer to remind them that the consequence of sin is none other than death. Death is ugly. Death smells bad. Death is messy. It's not normal. So this abnormal activity was to be a reminder that death is what we earned as our wage from sin in the garden. And that therefore all these subsequent sacrifices are to remind us that 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 is what we deserve. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 30 here, as we get to the devastating consequences of the Passover, it says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. That's a, a fact of the Passover that it's easy to miss. That there were millions of grown men who were first born. Babies in cribs who were first born. Animals in the field that were first born. And there was a multitude of death. Because that's the wage of sin. I normally 
like to wait and save some application to the backside, but this is a poignant truth, and I, I want us to take a moment to to while we're here before we get to the the really good news is is take a moment to apply, take a moment to try to obey. Sin's natural consequence is death. That's easily lost on us because we don't deal with death very often, nor do we deal with it very well. Sin kills everything in its wake. We have a tendency to think, at least for some reason in our context, that sin is isolated to me. And as long as nobody knows, everything is okay. Had a little illustration of that this week in our home where one of my boys broke a rule and thus sinned against his parents. And in the wake of breaking that rule, the activity they were involved in did not go well and affected everybody else. And what I had to do in that moment was remind my kid that one sin not only affects them, but it affects the atmosphere. It affects the air around everybody. It affects the spiritual dynamic in the atmosphere around all those people. And when everything after that act went bad, it was a teaching moment to remind him that when we sin, it is never isolated to me. It affects everybody. And that living example was a reminder that what I do in private or I think in private or even in public and I think I'm going to get away with it affects everybody. Why? Because the consequence of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual pillaging of the atmosphere. This is often why you can come in a room and where there's been sin present, we feel it. It affects the mood. It affects relationships. It affects marriages. It affects all these things. Why? Because the wage of sin is death. Which is why we read in the Bible that no sin of anybody in the Bible recorded ever worked out well. You find one instance in the Bible where people sinned and it worked out to their benefit. I can't think of one personally where I sinned and it worked out to my benefit. And what we have to remember here, as we look at the Passover and recognize that Adam and Eve's sin brought about the death of the firstborn of everyone in the land of Egypt, animal, humans, we need to recognize sin still kills. Sin can kill momentum in our growth of the faith. It can kill our mood. It will kill our relational intimacy. And if unchecked, it will kill us physically. Sin has to be checked. Sin is not to be played with. It is to be killed. And so when we come to the Passover, the first thing we need to see is that the wages of sin is death. What's another thing that we see here in the Passover? The Passover continues to show us the need for a substitute. The Passover continues to show us the need for a substitute. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the pattern of substitute was built in early. Because before Adam and Eve left the garden, what did God do for them? God in His grace and mercy took an innocent creature and He slaughtered it. And He covered their shame with clothes for the first time. So that... When he said in chapter 2, verse 17, the day you eat of this, you will die. 
He was gracious because He didn't kill them on the spot, which they deserved. What did God do? He substituted in their place an innocent creature that paid the price for their sin and rebellion. And He covered their shame and He sent them out and He let them walk. So this pattern of substitute was built in early. The next example we see, and there there are multiple examples, but the next large one we see is that Abraham is provided with a substitute. You remember the story? God's God's pushing Abraham's buttons a little bit. He's, He's testing him. Do you love me? Will you follow me? Will you obey me? He sends him up on a mountain to sacrifice the promised child. And Abraham's being obedient. He takes Isaac up and he binds him and he puts him on the altar. And as he raises the knife, God calls and says, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. Do it. And he looked, and guess what was caught in the bushes? Ram. And Abraham that day called the Lord, and he called that place Yahweh will provide. God sees. Meaning, God provided that ram before the foundation of the world, that at that right moment, at that right time, there would be a substitute for Isaac. So what did he do? He unbinds Isaac, takes the animal, slaughters it, puts it on the altar. Isaac goes free when there was one that died in his place. Now we come to the Passover and God requires a lamb to be substituted for the people. And this pattern would be repeated for centuries. However, this continual bringing of sacrifices was supposed to remind them that goats and lambs just aren't enough. Because you read the Old Testament and you recognize it's not just the Day of Atonement. It's not just that one day where where the sacrifices are made for all the people, but it's all the sacrifices in between. Because if you did this, you bring this sacrifice. If you did that, you bring that sacrifice. And if you're poor and you can't afford this, you bring some birds and a few other things and you sacrifice them too. And what should have been being built into their thinking was that goats, lambs, turtle doves just don't do the job because we have to keep bringing them. So this continual bringing of sacrifices was to remind the people that these things simply aren't enough. What what do we need? Is there going to be something else? Is there going to be a day that this is ever over? Well, this great substitutionary work of God comes to an apex for Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where the greatest substitution, the one to which the Passover points is articulated by Paul. He makes this substitutionary work of Jesus clear. Remember I keep pointing out this to you and it's very important that when Paul is writing what he's writing in the New Testament, Paul isn't making stuff up. This is important to remember. Paul is preaching from the text. He's he's preaching with the framework of what has already been written, what God has given him. So that as Paul comes to 2 Corinthians 5.21... He makes this most important statement about this work of substitution that God has been building into history. And here it is. For our sake, He made Him. Who's Him? Jesus, because that's who He's been talking about in chapter 5. 
For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Whoa. Wait a second. So, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So, in other words, God took my sin and He put it on Jesus. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So, God took Jesus... And He put on Him all of our guilt so that God could then take Jesus' righteousness and give it to me. The great substitution. The greatest substitution ever. This Passover event was there as a signpost to let us know that God substitutes the innocent for the guilty. So that when Jesus comes, the innocent Son of God, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where was John getting that from? He was getting it from the Passover. This, this lamb that was set aside and slaughtered in the place of guilty people. John says, that's Jesus. That's the lamb. That's the one. And he's given for the sin of the world. So when Paul writes that God made him to be sin for me, so that he takes my sin and he puts my, his righteousness on me, the greatest substitution in the world has been made. As a result, the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. If you've never read the book of Hebrews, do it today. It's not that long of a book. It's all about how Jesus is that substitute. That, that's, that's what it's about. How Jesus is that one. So as a result of that, the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has entered into the holy places. Christ has... Entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Substitution. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The great substitution. These goats and these bulls, year after year after year after year, were not sufficient. So the Lamb of God comes, and He comes not to offer Himself repeatedly, but one time to do away with sin. And so therefore, we see in the Passover God's act of substitution that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Listen, Three Rivers Church, this is the glory that you have for you in the gospel, that if you are in Christ, all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with already. And you have been given the righteousness of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as your standing before God. So that before God, your sin is never viewed, never seen. So that all you get from God is mercy, never judgment, never justice. It's good news. And in that sacrifice, and in that substitution, is God's power, therefore, to conquer sin. This is why the Christian doesn't remain in their sin. 
is because of the power of the substitution, the power of the righteousness of Christ will always overcome sin and repentance. Because that's how good Jesus' righteousness is. Does that make sense? God tells us, He tells us all through the Scriptures, when we come to the New Testament, this beautiful passage in Romans 8. Why can we put a sword in sin? Because we've got the righteousness of Christ. That's what the righteousness of Jesus does. It doesn't tolerate sin, doesn't like sin, doesn't match with sin. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So when sin is there, what do we want to do? We want to get rid of sin. We don't like sin. We recognize it doesn't taste good. What do we do? We spit it out. We put a sword in it. Why? Because I have the righteousness of Christ. Listen, very important point. Those who don't have the righteousness of Christ will love their sin more than Jesus, and they will never put their sin to death and thus prove they're not followers of Jesus. This is why John says what John says in 1 John chapter 3. This is why Jesus says the things He says about obeying Him and listening to Him and doing what He said because that's what people who have the righteousness of Christ do. And so for those of us in Christ, there is really good hope this morning that if I have the righteousness of Christ, the substitution has been made, I will hate sin and love Jesus. So that when I do sin, I will run back to Jesus. I'll repent and I'll put a sword in that sin because I love Jesus more than my sin. But also is a great warning to those who love their sin. If I love my sin more than Jesus, there needs to be some questions about my salvation. Because there's been a great substitution that's taken place. So Three Rivers Church, if you're in Christ, the substitution has been made. Now, this isn't a, the text of the Exodus. That's, that comes up after the Passover. This is the Passover. But what God does for them after the Passover and the Exodus, He set them free from Egypt. And therefore, because we're in Christ, He has set us free from the slavery of our sins so that we have a desire to put a sword in our sin. We don't remain in sin. Sin doesn't taste good. Right? We recognize, we recognize it breaks the atmosphere. We don't like a broken atmosphere. Does anybody enjoy that, the, the consequences of your sins? Anybody just like, oh, that was so good. Let me wallow in that a little while. No. If we do, we have a salvation problem. But if we don't, it's because we have the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ doesn't like darkness. It's light. It's clean. Doesn't like dirtiness. Right? And so we run from it. I've got to get away from this. I'm so sorry, Lord. How could I do that? What a moron. I'm a knucklehead. And he goes, yeah, you're right, but gosh, I love you because you have the righteousness of my son. That's what we do. Because God has graciously passed over us and given us the righteousness of his son. Third observation. God's heart in the Passover is to display the glory of the good news with justice and mercy. So God's heart in the Passover is to put on display His glory in the good news with justice and mercy. Those are the two dominant themes that come out of the Passover, justice and mercy. We see God's righteous justice in that sin is not winked at here, is it? God doesn't look at the Egyptians and go, it's okay, just kidding. When I said to Adam and Eve that today you eat it, you'll die, I was just kind of like putting a, a, a veiled thread out. There's kind of an empty thread, just kind of hoping you wouldn't mess up. Now, we see that in the Passover, God cares about justice. And because sin has to be paid for, the cost was the death of the firstborn. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't wink at sin. 
In fact, his proper and right anger at sin is put on display in the death of the firstborn. People don't just go free. They go free through the payment of debt incurred from the offense. And all people inherit Adam's sin. And because they could not pay for their offense, it was just that they died. God puts on display justice. But God also put on display mercy. So that those who obey His word and come under the substituted innocent lamb, they do get to go free. Not because they were righteous, but because there was a substitution made. Because there was one who died in their place. So that mercy got to be put on display, mingled with righteousness. Can anybody think of an event in human history where the righteous justice of God and the mercy of God got put on display all at the same time? Hmm. The cross. Because what happens at the cross is God takes the innocent, perfect Lamb of God and He substitutes Him in our place so that justice gets done and that God punishes sin, but mercy gets done and that God displays mercy to all those who come to Jesus. Think there's a passage in your Bible that speaks to that? Why, yes, there is. I'm glad you asked. It's Romans 3, 21 to 26. This passage deserves more than I'm going to do with it right here. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther said of Romans 3, 21 to 26, it's the cross place, it's the crux, it's the centerpiece of the whole Bible. I agree. Because what Paul's doing in Romans 3 is he's making the case that all men have sinned and that they're under the condemnation of God. And before he liberates them with the good news of God's salvation, he here in chapter 3, 21 to 26, he has to make the case that they're guilty. And he does. He does it well. And then he says, but now, <laughs> but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here it is. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's a big word, I know it. Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what propitiate means. It means to satisfy the justice of God's wrath. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Who did God put forward to satisfy His wrath? Jesus. Well, why? This was to show God's what? Righteousness. So what was God doing when He put Jesus on the cross and satisfied His wrath? He was putting on display His righteousness. Well, why? Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. Oh. So, why did God put Jesus on the cross? To satisfy His wrath? Because He passed over former sins. See, what God did in the Passover was a signpost to point us to the cross. It was never a satisfaction for their sin. You see, the reality is God let His people go free because He's merciful. And He took it out on the Egyptians. Think about David for a second. If God doesn't crucify Jesus, 
He's unjust. He's unjust because he let David walk free. David is not a good man. He is no moral example to be made. He's a murderer and an adulterer. And in his ending years was a weak leader and let other people take his throne. He was unjust and unrighteous. Yet God calls him a man after his own heart. So if Jesus doesn't go to the cross and the Father doesn't put him there, God's unjust because he let David walk free. But what does God do? Because he passed over David's sin, because he passed over Abraham's sin, because he passed over Isaac's sin, because he passed over Jacob's sin, because he passed over Hezekiah's sin, because he passed over Judah's sin. Because He was good and kind and gracious for those who trusted in Him. He passed over their sins. So therefore, He put Jesus on the cross to pay for it. Verse 26, It was to show His righteousness at the present time. God put on display at the cross the righteous justice that was owed for the sins of people who trusted in Him. So that He might be just. So that He might be just. So that. So that's a purpose clause. What's the purpose? So that God is just. Because if God doesn't pay for David's sin, God's not just. So how does God pay for David's sin that He passed over? The eternal Son of God, Jesus, comes and He dies in David's place for David's sin. And God substitutes David's sin for Christ's righteousness. So God is just. But He's also the what? The justifier of the one who's faith in Jesus. Mercy. So that if I have faith in Jesus, if I trust in Jesus Christ, God takes all of my guilt away from me and counts me as though I've never sinned. So the Passover puts on display justice and mercy. Wow. That God would be just to deal with my sin. Listen, this is huge. This is huge. This is huge. This is huge. If you're in Christ, your sin has been dealt with. And oh, how easy it is to fall back into feeling condemnation. Which is why Paul will say in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a tool of Satan, not God. Because if you're in Christ, your sin has been dealt with. God has been just in putting the Son on the cross. And He's dispensed mercy for those who have faith in Jesus. And He puts that on full display in the Passover. God's just... And executing animals and people for His people. And He's merciful in letting them go. And that big signpost was there to point us to the One who would come and be the ultimate substitution. Justice and mercy. Side note. Side note. God loves justice. Justice isn't just something we enjoy in our salvation. Justice is something Christians are to be involved in because we have been given the task of justice. It's easy for us to talk about justice when it comes to my salvation and the cross. It's easy to ignore justice for people outside of our spheres of influence. God cares about justice. 
God cares about righteousness. Which means those of us who've had the Son die in our place for our sin ought to be the people working for justice in the world because God cares about justice. God cares so much about justice, He put His own Son on the cross to cover for your sin and mine. So therefore, why should we not be people who care about justice? For the oppressed, for those in the minority. Justice is a God issue, not just a my salvation issue. So that those who've been rescued from the fall should be people who care about justice and that justice is done. I'm going to just say something to us here. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. It's not in your notes, particularly for those who are of us who are in the majority. We need to do a better job of getting outside of our comfort and recognizing injustice outside of our majority mindset and be advocates for those who've not experienced the justice we get naturally. Just let that land where it is because we enjoy our salvation. And the cross is awesome because I'm not going to hell. But what about those in the world who don't get to taste justice? Of all the people that ought to be fighting for that, it ought to be Christians, number one. That's why we talk about domains of society, guys. That, that, that we release the church to operate in domains. This is why those of you in the legal profession, you get to work for justice at the legal level. Some of us only get to work for justice at the skin in the game, flat out just gutting it out, trying to make things that are broken right. But either way, we engage domains with the justice of the gospel because God is a just God. We don't just enjoy justice in our salvation. We enjoy justice in fixing the domains of society. God cares about justice. Finally, Jesus fulfills the Passover. Jesus fulfills the Passover. Luke 22, 14 to 20. Jesus fulfills the Passover. All the Gospels speak of this time that Jesus had with His disciples here at the very end of His earthly ministry. Luke makes it as absolutely clear as the rest of them, and maybe a little more so because of the language that He uses. When Jesus says what He says in this passage, He is making the explicit connection to Himself in the Passover. Because after this event, God instituted this meal as an observance that was to be done forever. Right? If you read, if you read through Exodus, you recognize God wasn't just interested in them observing this meal once. It was a, it was, it was a statute forever. So when Jesus comes and He has this meal with His disciples and He institutes the Lord's Supper, there is an implication that we carry it on. Which is why we do it weekly. One of the reasons we do it weekly. Is you just participated in the bread and the cup. That didn't come out of thin air. Jesus instituted that meal from Exodus 12. This event, this meal that they were to eat, Jesus gives it its full definition as He sits down one last time with His disciples before He goes to the cross. Luke 22, 14 to 20. And when the hour came, He reclined at table... And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They've been eating this meal since Exodus 12. And on this day, Jesus says, here's what it means. This bread that you've been eating for all these centuries, it is my body. And just like you break it and you consume it, you are to take it and eat it. Which is why he would say in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. You have to be mine. You have to be in me. And this cup, it is the new covenant. It's my blood. It is this new covenant that God is making. Jesus tells us the bread is his body broken and given for them and the cup is his blood poured out for this new covenant. Well, what new covenant? Glad you asked. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 This new covenant that the Lord promised, He unpacks. And what Jesus just said here is this new covenant that I promised you in Jeremiah 31 has come to pass. This meal you've been eating points to me. It's an indicator. It's a great signpost. It's a big LED sign over 75 letting you know this is what this meal is all about. Me, He says. And He said this blood, this cup you've been drinking that points to what I'm about to do is the fulfillment of the promise I made you in Jeremiah 31. Which which is why we want you to read your Bible. Is this stuff, these signs are all over your Bible. They're written in the history. They're all over the text. Some of them you're going to have to dig. You're going to have to find. Man, some of the examples we've shown, you have to dig deep and make connections. Some of them like the Passover or big LED signs over history letting you know this is pointing us to Jesus. But when Jesus redefines the Passover, He points them back to this promise that He made them about what He's fixing to do. And here's what He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand and bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I... Uh, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Jesus lets them know this meal was pointing to this great work that I'm about to accomplish. My, bre- my body's the bread, my blood is the cup, and it's the institution of this new deal. That I'm going to take my law and I'm going to now write it on your heart. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I will forgive your sin and I'll remember it no more. So we come to these tables. This is no light thing we do. This is, this is taking into our bodies and all of our senses the remembrance of the price that was paid to substitute my sin for His righteousness. So as I eat that bread, I'm to be reminded that Jesus was broken and He died the death I deserved. As I drink the cup, I'm to be reminded the blood He spilled was spilled to take away my sin. So that if I'm in Christ, Jesus is counted with all of my sin and He has given me all of His perfection. 
That is no meal to be taken lightly. That's not to be trifled with. It is to be enjoyed. It is to be celebrated. It is to be an absolutely joyous moment and a sober moment. And Jesus fulfills the Passover for us and lets us know that this meal is the pointer to everything He has done. Passover. So how do we obey? Two final points of obedience. Number one, believe the gospel and follow Jesus. Man, if you find yourself outside of Christ today, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Paul tells in Romans chapter 10 to believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So maybe you're in here this morning and you recognize I love my sin more than I love Jesus. There's no repentance in my life. I don't follow Jesus. My life is sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. And I've never followed the Lord. I invite you this morning to trust Jesus. He took your guilt and He dispenses mercy to those who come to Him in faith and repentance. And then finally, worship as a response to God's grace. You see, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but right after the Passover, there's this little event called the Exodus. Kind of important. Chapter 12, chapter 13... Chapter 14, they find themselves pinned up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army behind them. God in His great mercy rescues them through the sea. They pass through. And when Pharaoh and his army try to follow, the sea closes in over them. And the people are rescued. What do you think they did in chapter 15? What do you think they did? They sang. Throw this on you. Ready? What did Jesus and the disciples do after they took the Passover meal together? They sung a... You paid attention? It's right in the Gospels. They what? They sung a hymn. Why did they sing a hymn? Because Moses sung a hymn. Listen, this is awesome. Jesus isn't making stuff up. I can't say this enough to you. When Jesus comes to us at Christmas and we celebrate the Incarnation... Jesus isn't making stuff up. He's working off the text He's already inspired. He's living out what He wrote already. So that when He moved Moses to write a song and they would sing it after the Passover and Exodus, when Jesus observes the Passover and defines it for them, they sung a hymn. Just like in Exodus. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Which is one of the reasons as a church we sing in response to the Lord's Supper and the sermon. is because it's a response to what God has done. Look at Exodus 15.1. I told you, I mean, I'm really done. This is it. I just, I just want to set this up well for you and, and the band. I want to set up for them the most vital work that they're doing. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And it's what is called the Song of Moses. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? They sang. Worship is a response to God's grace. God delivers them. He substitutes for them. He takes them out of slavery. And upon their deliverance and their recognition of it, they sing a song. God's people sang a song in response to God's mighty grace. So should all who follow Jesus. Worship, therefore, must center on retelling what God has done. Which is why... We sing songs about God and His grace and His mercy. We are simply retelling what He's done.
And this is what's crazy about that. When we do that, we are singing to God of His mercies and His wonder. Which is why we don't sing songs about us. We sing songs about Him. Because it is a retelling of what He has done for us in Christ. This is why Christian worship services look the way they do. Because that's the pattern God laid out in the text. Isn't that fun? And guess what? We're going to do that right now. So let me tell you this. Don't be found before Jesus silent. There probably were not too many people who crossed the Red Sea after being delivered from Pharaoh and his army. He went, that's not my favorite song, Moses. Nah, a little too fast, a little too slow. Nah, nah, nah. No. My hunch is after that kind of deliverance, they sung to the Lord. If you really recognize who you are and what Jesus has done for you, there should be nobody in this room standing silent. Because you've been substituted for. Christ substituted for you. So that you walk free, He took your punishment. That's why the Bible calls it good news. That's why Christians sing. That's why we sing. That's why we're going to sing now. So I'm going to pray. These guys are going to lead us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name now that you'll help us to sing. Sing well. Not because we're here to perform, but because you deserve our worship. So we want to focus on retelling what you have done for us. And gosh, you've done abundantly, amazingly more than we can ask or imagine. So, Lord, I ask that you will accomplish now in the hearts of your people a great desire to respond to you in song, to retell in the heavenlies and speak out in the heavenlies, in this room and above this created order, your mercies and all that you have done. And God, I pray that in that moment you would speak to your people, that there would be this exchange of relationship where we glorify You and You encourage us and we sing to You and You lead us. We rejoice in You and You counsel us. And I pray that this would be a moment, that would be a landmark moment for some people today that they have tasted Your grace, received Your grace, and they sing back to You Your glories. Would You do that in this moment? May we not be people who are so caught up with inferior things that we can't enjoy you in this moment. Please help us to do that well.